holy God is an awesome thing. Father, would you add by your spirit power to the reading and the teaching of your word tonight. We have eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear what you have to do and say in our midst and in our hearts, in our lives tonight. God, we come ready and pray that there would be a grace upon this message in our lives and in our hearts. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight marks the second time in my life that I've preached from the book of Revelation. And the first time was two weeks ago. Um, and I'm kind of loving it. It won't be the last. In order to understand the passage that we just read and that we looked at together, you need some context. And if you've not spent time in the book of Revelation, then you probably don't have it. And so really quickly, I want to try and give you a little bit of context for why at this moment heaven is erupting in worship. Because if you read it, there's all kinds of exclamation marks in that text. Like they aren't just kind of worshiping on the back end. They're bringing it. Like it's loud and it is enthusiastic. And so to understand what's happening, why is all of heaven breaking out in incredible worship and potentially maybe that we would even have the grace to join them today, some context might be helpful. Revelation chapter 17 and 18, the, verse, the chapters right before this, give us the context for the worship that we read about in Revelation 19. In those chapters, heaven is exploding in worship. Why? Because the great prostitute has been judged and defeated. Clear it up? It's like, what? <laughs> okay. These might be some of the reasons why this is the second time that I've preached from the book of Revelation. We spent some time tonight. Let's talk about the great prostitute. The, the great prostitute, also referred to in those chapters as Babylon the Great. Uh, Referring back as the reader would read this, and for us tonight to give some context, certainly to any uh, Jewish person hearing it would have hearkened back to Babylon. Would have spoke of, of, a, of a power who dominated the world. And in that domination, in their superpower, sort of, they, they kind of had arrived. A giant kingdom had taken over and the ways of Babylon were the ways of the whole world, whether the whole world liked it or not. Right? To argue with Babylon was a dangerous thing to do. Uh, and it was the land of exile. It was the land where the people of God were taken from their land, the land that God had prepared for them, into this land of exile. This is Babylon. So here in the book of Revelation, as this name is put to this, this woman were to be hearkened back to this. And in the present day, most commentators would say that John very clearly had the city of Rome and the, the, the nation or the, the superpower, again, this world power of Rome in his day and mind. I'll give you the actual biblical uh, kind of definition of this great prostitute, this Babylon, the great if you look at the beginning of chapter 17, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of earth 
have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This Babylon the Great, this one who has become a, a, a problem seems to put it far too mildly, having just read the text I read, right? Has seduced and has worked to seduce the creation of God away from God. She has worked to seduce, and so the language of immorality is used. The, the language of prostitution to invite or to seduce the people of God away from their God into relationship, into intimate relationship even, the most intimate relationship with the, the things of her heart. And the world, it says, as you read through those other chapters, kings and merchants and serfs, shipmasters, you know, the elite, the ones who make the world go around. This is a hot word right now. Uh, politicians are using it a lot right now in our country to um, call each other out. The elite, the ones with the power, the ones with the money, the ones who get their way and who set pace, these ones, it says, have committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. So the impact of this one in the world is great. Ray Ortland, an incredible uh, man of God. Some of you who were in Corpus with us in our last run re will remember Ray. He was in some of the videos we watched. Incredible teacher. He kind of sums it up this way, that this great prostitute, this Babylon the Great, is the one who corrupts and seduces the world. This Babylon the Great uses this imagery of a city, and so if we took it into the city, it would be like the place where the corrupt and seductive world resides, where anything goes. And so you kind of get some context for who it is that then in, the, in chapter 18, but then is celebrated in night, is defeated. So all of heaven erupts in worship for good reason. Because we watch in these chapters that this one is defeated, torn down. I love one of the worship pieces there. It was interesting to me. I thought, side note, but hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Right? She's down, never to get up again. Hallelujah! It's a great day. 
Now the imagery of Babylon the Great, of this great prostitute, harkens back to biblical language throughout the Bible. And certainly in the Old Testament, we get all kinds of examples of the prophets speaking of the people of God as those who are in like a marriage relationship with God. It speaks of Israel, or the people of God, as a bride. And their God as the groom. That they're in covenant relationship, much like a marriage. And then it also uses this language of, uh, of adultery, right, or of prostitution to speak of their continual breaking of the covenant. You could read the book uh, if you want to spend some time this week and, and read, and I would pray in the power of the Spirit that it would grip your hearts, the book of Hosea. This story of a prophet who marries a prostitute. And their relationship comes for the prophet to be a message to the people of God about their own journey with God. And I'll give you another example. If you look at, I'm going to turn to the book of Ezekiel. You're welcome to turn there with me, but I'm also going to get the scriptures put up on the screen behind me as I go. I'll give you a little quick example of how this works. So in Ezekiel chapter 16, we'll start in verse 8. It says, When I passed by you again and saw you, Behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garments over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So this is God, through the prophet, speaking to his people. You know, it's this language of marriage. We've, we've come into covenant relationship. You are mine. And so this idea of Israel as a bride we catch there. And then it goes on. I'm going to keep reading, starting in verse 9 to 14. Speaking of the faithfulness of God, of the groom, to this covenant. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and I covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a, a beautiful crown upon your head. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver. And your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. And you ate fine flour, honey, oil, you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown, it went out from among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed upon you, declares the Lord your God. That's a good husband. Husbands tonight, take notes. That my wife would write that one day. Hey, I am. Look at, look at me. Part of this is because my husband sees me, and he has made a way for me. He doesn't suppress me, or hold me back, or outshine me at every turn. Right? What a rabbit trail, but a good one. This faithfulness, though, of God in that place as like husband to his people, as one in an intimate love relationship with his people. But then, as in many of the prophetic examples I could use, we'll keep reading. And in the next verse, we see Israel's total desertion 
abandonment of the beauty we've just read. Having come into this space, it says then in verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. I could keep reading. He just kind of keeps going. It's hard to read. It's tough language. But it speaks to the people of God who are in covenant relationship with this God and who continually break that covenant. And the prophets use this language of prostitution, this language of adultery, of immorality. But then the story, praise God, doesn't end there, even in the prophets. If you go to the end of that same chapter, I'll read for you the final verses, because what's incredible to me about our God through all these prophetic examples is, though this is the story of people over and over and over again, the story of God is also over and over again. He's faithful. He doesn't give up. So catch this, end of the same chapter. Same chapter. I did all this for you. I raised you in beauty, and you took that beauty, that very thing I gave to you, and you ran around like prostitutes, giving it away to anyone you could find. And then this is how it ends. It's incredible. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. Wow. The, the response, the heart of God in these places is beyond comprehension on some levels. And it's certainly beyond the current cultural comprehension. Right? Who, if... They're anything like me, if you're anything like me, are quick to give up. Quick to take moments of, like moments of adultery, and say, well, there it is, we're done. Who, who, who read this and think, goodness, I mean, if you read through the book of Hosea, you will have moments for sure where you stop and think, what? Especially if you read it through the lens of pop psychology. or the current temperature in our, in, in our time. It makes absolutely no sense. And what the prophet is saying is this isn't just Hosea's story. This is your story as the people of God. As those created by God and relentlessly pursued by God and loved by Him. God's heart is hard for us to understand, but hear this tonight. Whether you can comprehend it or receive it easily tonight, it is true that he loves you and that the covenants that God makes with his people, he does not stop on. We have a sure promise, a, a confident hope 
And that, that sure promise, that hope that we can trust in, is built on nothing less than the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. Now in the New Testament, this same theme continues to be picked up. Let me read for you a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2-3. to This is incredible. Paul says this to the church in Corinth as a pastor, as an apostle. He says to them, For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Catch the wording. A divine jealousy for you. Paul's saying, as your pastor, as a leader in your community, one who serves you, I have caught the heart of God for you. It's not just my jealousy. It's not just because as a pastor I've worked so hard to try and build this church. It's, it's not, even though I do care about you, what I'm referring to here is beyond my own. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul uses here this language of betrothal, that he has betrothed this church to God. And this language is really important for us as we come to our text tonight, getting back to Revelation 19, where we're told that, get ready, it's time to like, blow up and worship because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Right? As we think about this idea of marriage and coming to its full culmination in the end, there is this idea to which I would look at it and we would kind of maybe read it and say, if the marriage is still coming, then what does that say of our today? If it's something that we can look forward to with hope, what though is this mean, this marriage supper of the Lamb to come, what does it speak to my life with Jesus now? Right? And Paul uses this language of betrothal, which I, and not until I studied this week did I understand this, that in the Jewish culture, if you are betrothed to someone... You were married. You just didn't live together yet, and you didn't, you didn't consummate the marriage. There was a season. It's kind of like they took engagement super serious. Right? That once you'd done that, in fact, you'd even entered into a legally binding relationship. So that if you were betrothed, for example, and the man passed away, they would refer to the woman as a widow. So it's not just that you've kind of got the date set and one day something's going to happen. It is sure. It hasn't happened yet, the marriage feast, the wedding day. But you can count on it. That's the agreement we've made. And so when Paul says you've been betrothed to your God, he's saying this marriage feast is not something you have to wonder about. It's sure. Because your God is committed to it. You're betrothed to the lamb, to the groom. Our relationship to God continues to be one that is really well understood when we think of it in terms of marriage. The, the world continues to seduce us and to accuse and to judge us, just like the great prostitute here in Revelation. 
That as we walk through life, and certainly as we walk as the people of God and seek to walk in the way of God, we come up against opposition. I think it was a couple months ago we spent some time looking at temptation, and we talked about the tempter, right? This idea that temptation really is just a seduction unto disobedience, a trying to pull our attentions and our allegiances, to try and draw us away from the one that we love. And seduction doesn't work very well if it isn't attractive, if it doesn't play to something of a longing or desire in us. And there is something about this world that we live in and the way that it pulls us. But there's good news for us tonight, good news for us today, and good news for us in the big picture. And it's this, Revelation 19. Babylon the Great has been defeated. The great prostitute is going down. That the things that we stand up against or that we hold our faith in light of, hard as that might be, that cost is overwhelmed by the glory that is ours in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's tough to stand in, in the narrow way, Jesus called it, to stand in the way of Jesus in a world that pulls so hard. And even as it pulls, if it can't get you just by the seduction, will actually begin to accuse you of things that aren't true. God has imposed on her, Revelation 18.20 says, the sentence that she passed on you. And one of the pictures that gets pulled into these spaces too very, very um, acutely is the witness of the martyrs, those who gave their very lives to hold to that relationship with Jesus, to hold to the way of Jesus. And the promise is that the tables are being flipped, the tables are being turned. And so suddenly, in the midst of this, understandably, as the context comes clearer and clearer, we start to realize, man, it makes sense that heaven is exploding in worship. That heaven is, is lit up. It can't be stopped. Because this is such good news. When heaven sees this great defeat, they are struck by the glory of the one who's won the victory, but they are also struck by the implications of this. They, 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 are, they are moved by the thought that the things that seduce and oppress and pull us away from the Creator, that try and take us from that love relationship, have been put down. The implications are, having been put down, we can now live in that freedom, live in that intimacy, and the result is worship. Let us rejoice and exalt and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. My question for us tonight is connected to the verse that I just read. That was Revelation 19.7. Because in the worship, it is, there's this excitement about the marriage feast coming, but there also is this excitement about the fact that the bride is ready for the wedding feast. That the bride has been made ready. 
And so the question for us, I think, tonight is, are you ready? I had it, some of you are going to relate to this, and some of you it will just be lost on you. But back in kind of early 2000s, David Roos did a mist, the mystery album. It was this worship album. And he has this one song kind of rooted in one of the parables of the virgins waiting to come into the feast. And over and over in the background is this kind of like electronic thing that was really cool in the 2000s. I was like the coolest thing at the time. It's going over and over. And in the background, you can just hear somebody going, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? That's my question for us tonight. Are you ready? There's a parable in Matthew 22 that speaks of a king who throws a wedding feast for his son. And he invites the people you would think to invite. And they're all too busy to come. And the king's a little bit upset about the whole situation. Where are they? Well, one had to do their hair and one had to, you know, harvest and one had to wash the car. Like, it just... They're excuse upon excuse. And the king says, this is unacceptable. We have a wedding to celebrate. Go out and find anyone you can and get them in here. There, there's a celebration to be had. And so the servants do. They go out and they find anyone they can. And they bring them all into this, into this wedding feast. Right? Jesus says, this is, this is kind of a, a story I'll use to make a point. Right? And near the end of this parable, we get this kind of telling then of what happens when having filled the place with all these people, the king then comes into the wedding feast. And it's an interesting passage. We just start in verse 11 of Matthew 22. It says, When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And so the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And I think, wow. What did I miss? Like, our, our, right? our Canadian social justice kicks in the gear, and we're like, man, maybe he's poor. Like, maybe, like they just went and found these people. Maybe he didn't know there was going to be a wedding, and he wore the best he could wear. And he, like, what if he couldn't find something better? And what if he couldn't afford a better garment? Like, you just want to have all kinds of conversations with Jesus at this point, right? This just seems so, like, whoa, calm down. How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And it, it hearkens to this language of garments, which we see, again, throughout the Scriptures relating to God's people. And certainly, we see here in the book of Revelation, again, in Revelations chapter 19. Because we're told that the people of God, that the church, that it had been granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And it hearkens my attention back to Ephesians chapter 27, where Paul says, to, to husbands love your wives as like Christ loves the church. And then he kind of goes into this thing about how Christ is the husband, Christ is the groom, is at work to prepare a church, to prepare a bride who is spotless. 
without wrinkle. Harkens back to Ezekiel. Beautiful, pure, holy, righteous. And what stands out in all these different places as you look at the different verses and passages of Scripture that speak, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, they're like a polluted garment. Right? And then if we look at Philippians chapter 3, we've got Paul speaking of this relationship with Jesus and his desires. And he says that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What we catch here happening in Revelation What Jesus is pointing to even in his parable already is that the wedding garment isn't something you buy. That the wedding garment isn't something that you have to go and find or even make on your own. That the wedding garment has been laid out for you by the groom. You just have to put it on. And so when we ask ourselves questions like, are you ready? What happens for you? I know a few of you. And you know me. Part of what happens for me is I think, oh boy. (sighs) Dig deep, Chad. Get ready. Right? Good luck. Paul says, I'm not looking for a righteousness that comes from the law through these actions, through this merit, through this work of my own hand. Paul knew that life. He gave it up. To follow one who came and said, because of what I did on the cross, the lamb who was slain said, Paul, you're good. Why? Because I declare you righteous. Just put on the garment, Paul. We're going to come to the table together now. And as we come to the table, we're going to start with confession. We do this consistently in our lives, right? If you or following the daily office. You do this a few times a day. What a beautiful way to think about this. That the groom has laid out for us garments, pure, fine linen, white, contrasted in a, in, in a, in a profound way with the garments of the prostitute, by the way, who are everything we'd think we'd want purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and luxury and all the things that seduce us. And Jesus is saying, hey, change those polluted garments for these pure white linens. Be adorned in in, in the wedding garments that I have prepared, that I have laid out for you. And so as we come to the table tonight and we make our confession, what a beautiful way to even think about that. Right? That here in this place of confession, I trade in polluted garments for the gift of my lover. The gift of the God who has relentlessly pursued me my entire life. And who is present right here. Are you ready? There is a marriage feast coming. And you as Christians, you as sons and daughters of God are betrothed to the the groom. That we as a church 
are coming to that wedding not only to spectate, but to be made one with Christ. Are you ready? What are you wearing? I want to invite you tonight. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've not come into a relationship with him, to consider the invitation of God tonight to trade in your garments for the ones that only he can give you. But I also want to invite you, if you have muddied up your garments, if you stand in a place where this immorality where you have been seduced away and traded in your wedding garments for other garments to come and to make your confession to your Heavenly Father and to have Him come and wash you clean. Finally, I want to invite you tonight and let this lead us into worship as the betrothed. To worship as sons and daughters. To worship as those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. So worship with hope. Worship as the betrothed. Those who, if you've come into relationship with Jesus, can stand secure, can stand sure of this, that there will be a wedding and there's a seat there for you. Hallelujah. That the things that plague you and seduce you and try and pull you away will be defeated. Hallelujah. Worship in this hope. Even now, when still we wait. If the current political situation here in our country or around the world right now becomes overwhelming for you, you know what my encouragement to you is, my invitation to you is this week? Worship. Put your eyes on Jesus and worship in the sure hope that he wins. Worship in hope and put on the wedding garments that Jesus has given to you. If there's anything holding you back from trading in your garments, any shame, any sense of unworthiness, my prayer for you as we come to the table tonight is that you would encounter Jesus, that you would hear his voice clearly as the one who loves you. Those garments were set out for you. They're yours. Put them on and worship. Here at the table, we join in the worship of heaven. And as a bride betrothed to the Lamb who sits on the throne. And so I invite you tonight to come to the Lord's table. To encounter Jesus. To receive Him. To come into intimate encounter. As you take bread and wine into your very body. Worship the Lamb who is seated on the throne. Worship, because Christ has defeated that which seeks to accuse and destroy you. Worship the one who, by his victory, has restored us to himself. Hallelujah. Worship 
the one who has replaced our filthy, polluted rags with garments of purity and righteousness. In the Eucharist liturgy, and I've added it into our liturgy tonight, the liturgy culminates uh, at, at times as one of our options, and we will definitely use it tonight, probably for a while moving forward. But right before I serve you the bread and the wine, two verses are brought together in a great declaration that says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Church, I bless you tonight as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. Would you come and trade any filthy rags, any polluted rags for pure ones tonight? Would you make your humble confession to the Lord? Give you a moment of private confession before we join our prayer.